We're going to be in Mark's Gospel this morning. We're going to be in chapter 11, uh, looking at verses 1 to 11. I titled this morning's message, The Triumphal Entry of the King. And we, as we do here in this church and, and in Calvary Chapel, we're taking a book of the Bible, we're taking it chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and we're just working our way through the Gospel of Mark. We just happen to be in this uh, 11th chapter this morning. And if you've been here and following along in Mark, you know that Mark's Gospel was pretty much written in chronological order. We can read through the 16 chapters of, of Mark, and we can see how the Lord was progressively drawing closer and closer to the cross. He had a mission. He knew why he had come, and he knew where he was going, and he knew where this was going to all end up, and it was going to end up at the cross. It was going to end up in the, in the redemption for mankind. We come to this 11th chapter of Mark, and we might say that this is the start of the last stage of Jesus' ministry. You see, the, the good news about Jesus Christ, we know it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but let's start back with the fact that Jesus Christ came into this world a miraculous birth, that He was birthed into this world to be the Savior of this world, Jesus Christ. That's good news. He came, and 1 Timothy 1.15 tells us that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. I like that. It's right to the point. It's why He came. Thirty years would pass after Jesus came into this world. He wouldn't begin His public ministry until He was aged 30 years. It started with his water baptism as he went out to John the Baptist. And on that day, Jesus was marked out as the Savior. He was marked out as the Savior of this world, the one who had come to forgive man of their sins. He was the Messiah, the coming one, the one that they had been waiting for. And he was marked out that day at the beginning of his public ministry. We're told that the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness where He was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He did all of this. He lived a life and in His human sense. He was all God but all man. And He lived this life and He went through all that He did. And what we're so privileged to have a God that came in flesh and presented Himself to you and I. He was driven into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, ministering to Jesus, and He came out of that wilderness victoriously. That's God's design for you and I, by the way. That we would be victorious in the wilderness. We know that Jesus left that 
wilderness and was in the area of Judea. And he began his early Judean ministry, which would last about eight months. The first recorded words that we read in our Bibles, the first red letters that we read in our Bibles that came out of the mouth of Jesus is Matthew 4.17 that says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the first words we see out of the mouth of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and it requires repentance from mankind. Jesus would, after spending eight months in Judea, He would make His way up to the northern part of Israel, that region in the north called Galilee. He would spend and He would minister there for two years in that area. Much of what we have read in Mark is that time where Jesus spent up in the region of Galilee. After leaving Galilee in Mark chapter 10, we read a few weeks back, we're told, or we see that Jesus' face was set towards the cross. He was set towards Jerusalem. He was set towards the cross. And He left that region of Galilee for the last time. Jesus now, and that really all happened in, in chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel. A lot happened. Remember what you read in your Gospels, you're getting just a little synopsis of those three to three and a half years of Jesus' life. You're not getting it all. We won't get all of it until we're in heaven someday. But here's Jesus now in this 11th chapter where He's coming to this last stage of His journey. As a matter of fact, from chapter 11 to chapter 16, it's all going to be just covering a seven-day period of time. Actually, Seven days leading up to the cross. We're going to have a Passion Week, but then we're going to have His 40 days after the resurrection. And He's going to walk this earth before He ascends up into heaven. Three years of ministry have passed by this 11th chapter. He's down to the, the final week, the Passion Week we call it. We read in Acts 1.3, to whom also He showed Himself alive after His passion. That word passion means suffering. After His passion by many infallible proofs. All four Gospels speak of what we're going to read today. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all speak of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ coming into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, riding into Jerusalem as the King of Israel. It's significant. It's another point in our Lord's declaration to this world of who He was, who He is. Let's read in uh, Mark 11.1. 1. Now, when they that they is speaking of Jesus and the disciples and maybe even those that were following after Him, they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And we're told that on this particular day that Jesus sent two of His disciples. It doesn't name them, 
but he sent them into a nearby village. Jerusalem, also known as the Holy City, also known as the City of David or Mount Zion or Mount Moriah, also known as the Daughter of Zion. This beautiful top of this this mount that's there today. Well, if we have a picture of it, I, I, I think we have a, a picture of modern day, the modern day mount today. A beautiful city. It was the pride of Israel, this city. Here's Jesus now going to make his entrance for the very first time. He'd been to Jerusalem on a number of occasions, according to John's Gospel, but he's, this is going to be different. This is going to be Jesus now making his way into this holy city, this city of David on the back of a donkey as king of the Jews. Pretty incredible uh, city if you've ever been there, then you know what I mean. It's just beautiful, the, the vantage point, just to look down from the Mount of Olives and to look across the Kidron Valley and look at the, the whole Temple Mount that's there today. We know that uh, Jesus on this day already had it exactly marked out what was going to happen, like he did in every occasion, like he did on every day and every miracle and every person that he encountered, every trial and difficulty that he allowed his disciples to get into. Does that give you a little bit of hope that God knows exactly what is going on in your life from day to day? Don't ever lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ knows exactly what is going on in your life from moment to moment, and you're just one individual out of a mass of people in this world, but He knows exactly what's going on in your life. That should remove a lot of fear and anxiety. His hand's upon you. He's with you. He's in you if you know Him, and He's with you. Verse 2 tells us, that Jesus said to his disciples this day, go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and they found the colt tied by the door outside of this, on the street, and they loosed it. Actually, when Luke says that when you find this cold on which no one has ever sat, that, to me, this is all preordained by God. He's telling his disciples, I've read a number of different commentaries. People try to come up with, you know, they walk into this city on their own. He sends them into this village. Go fetch the colt. Bring him back to me. And when they, they get into this place, there's the colt. I mean, the Lord knows what's going on. And here's this colt tied up, just as he told them it would be. But some of those who stood there said to him, or said to them, excuse me, to the disciples or those two that went in to get the, the colt, what are you doing? And loosing this colt. You know, and, and some have thought, well, did Jesus have this all prearranged? Jesus would make his way down at least annually down to Jerusalem for the feast. 
he'd probably travel through these villages and, and, and maybe he prearranged it for this opportune time that he knew was coming. So that when he would send them in, they would meet. But what I, I just don't know how that was all prearranged as Jesus is arriving here. And he says, I want you to go into this village and I want you to retrieve this colt. And if anybody asks you, why are you taking the colt, which they did, then you can tell them that the Lord has need of it. And they would let you have the colt. Matthew tells us, uh, in verse 7, it says, They brought the colt to Jesus, excuse me, and they threw their clothes on it. And Jesus sat on it, and many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. Matthew tells us that there was a great multitude of people that were following after Jesus on this day. You need to have that picture in your mind. A multitude, whatever that looked like, but a great multitude of people that were following after Jesus on this day. As they quite often did. And then we read, Then those who went before and those who followed began to cry out. They began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I think the voices were loud. I think that they were, they, there was a, uh, on this day, they were praising God. They were lifting up their voices high, loudly, as Jesus was making his way on the back of this colt down to ride into Jerusalem. What they were quoting from and what these Jews that were there that day is they were reciting things that they knew that the Old Testament spoke of concerning the Messiah. They were waiting for their Messiah. They were waiting for their King. They were waiting for the one that was going to come and even deliver them from the Roman oppression and, and even to set up and establish his kingdom here on earth. They were waiting for that day. They, they believed that the prophets gave them specifics of what that would be like when the Messiah would come. They were probably thinking of Psalm 113 and one uh, to 118, which were these songs or these psalms, I should say, they were the praise songs for Israel. It was the uh, referred to as the Hallel, which just simply means praise. And that's what God's people, these Jewish people, were doing. They were they were lifting up these praises, this Hallel, this praise to the Lord. Psalm 118:24. They believed was a messianic psalm. This is the day, this is how it reads, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And then it says this, save now, Hosanna. They're saying, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were just reciting the psalms that they had been reciting and singing for all their life, all their time. I had an opportunity to, to go in that picture that we had up there, but I had an opportunity 
uh, in 2007 to go to Israel. If you've never been there before, trip of a lifetime. But we stood on that, that road and, and we looked down on the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. Had somebody playing a guitar and we had people in front of him and in back of him. We just, we walked down that, that hill, walking down towards the Kidron Valley and, and just singing worship songs as we down. It was, it was wonderful. If you ever have a chance to go, go. It was, it was an incredible time. 83 of us were on that tour that time. And we were lifting up our voice. It was, it was thrilling just to, to be there. Mark's gospel tells us that after riding into the city that day in verse 11, that Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple. I don't think he went into the actual temple itself, but probably into the courtyard. And we're, and we're told that it, as he went into that temple area, it says, so when he looked around at all the things, he went in and he observed. Can you, can you get that picture? Jesus coming down, getting off of that cult, and then walking into the courtyard around the temple. Begins to look around. See what's going on around. And I have a feeling that Jesus wasn't pleased with what He saw. Uh, with the people and what was there. He wasn't pleased with what He... You know what? And when we come into God's house, we come to this place, it, it, it made me think as I was looking at this, what does Jesus think? when we come into this place. And what would he think if he just came walking down the center aisle and he just kind of looking around at what's going on here at Calvary Chapel Fellowship? And the fact of the matter is, he is in our hearts and he's here where two or three are gathered. There I am in the midst. He's right here with us. And what does the Lord see when he comes into this place? What did he see on that day when he walked into that temple court area? He knew why He had come. He knew what was ahead. And I think that what He observed was probably, it probably grieved His heart. He knew the state of the people. Many times He prayed for Jerusalem and they wouldn't come. He wanted to gather them together like a hen brings her chicks. And her, you know, he wanted, but they wouldn't come. By the way, that's the heart of our Lord towards those people that don't know Him. He just desires that everyone would come to repentance. That's the heart of our Lord towards this world that we see today that our hearts want to even get bitter at. All the stuff we see going on that Jesus Christ came to die for the ungodly. They need Jesus Christ and we need to pray. Matthew's Gospel adds, all this was done. This is the same account, but it tells us all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew also adds a few other details into this account. Chapter 21, verse 10, it says that when Jesus had come into Jerusalem, we're told that all of the city was moved. The city was moved. The people had been praising Him as He came down that, 
side of the, uh, the hillside of the Mount of Olives. So he rode into the city of Jerusalem and the city was moved. And we're told that many of the people were saying, who is this? And so the multitude says, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. You see, word had traveled. Jesus was not somebody like, you know, they'd heard people from all around. Israel knew of Jesus of Nazareth. They just needed to come to an intimate understanding of why he came and who he was. And he is, in fact, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. In verse 20 or 15 of chapter 21 in Matthew, it says, When the chief priest, this is something else it adds in, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, they observed. And the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Even the children that were there, they're all crying out, saying the same thing. And in the hearts of these religious leaders, these priests, these scribes, the ones that should have known their scriptures, the one that should have been also praising him as he came down, it says they were indignant. They were angry. We already know that they wanted to kill him. They wanted to destroy him. They were indignant as the people were worshiping the Lord. What's interesting is that all of these shouts of praise, the Hallel, all all this praise going up that five days later, this praise was going to be turned into shouts of crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus knew that. He knew that it was going to be short-lived. It wasn't going to be something that you know, they were going to be saying crucify him. On this day, the prophecy of Zechariah was fulfilled. Over 500 years before Christ was birthed into this world, the prophet Zechariah spoke of this day. Prophecy is a big deal in the Bible. Prophecy is important for us to know. There's actually over 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ alone, let alone all the other prophecies. That's just in the life of Jesus. One person says it's 353 prophecies. In Revelation 19.10, we read that when the Apostle John, when he was receiving that revelation, we're told that he was standing there uh, on the island of Patmos and this angel came to him and John fell down at at the feet of this angel and John began to worship this angel. And the, and the angel said to, to him to stop worshiping him. He says, worship God, John, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. One commentator said this of this verse. Any teaching of prophecy that takes our minds and hearts away from him is not being properly 
communicated. Prophecy points to Christ. Prophecy leads us to future things that all are a testimony to you and I. He is who He said He was. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the one to come. Prophecy told the Jews that, yet they missed it. Because Jesus didn't turn out to be the the type of Messiah, the King that they were looking for. We have this prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, a prophecy that Israel was regarding as messianic. It was being fulfilled in their day. And, And... They were even shouting praises. It was just when it didn't turn out the way that they thought. Another prophecy that we find in our Bibles is in Isaiah, in Isaiah 62.11. It, it reads this way, Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world... Say to the daughter of Zion, that name for Jerusalem, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Prophesied by Isaiah the prophet 700 years before this day that Jesus Christ was going to come into that city and his reward is with him. His work is before Him. That cross was just going to be five days away. He was going to be hanging on that Roman cross. Pretty incredible. I'm glad that the Lord has confirmed all these things, given us prophecy, given us all these things that we can look to and say, you know what? There is just no way that this could be worked out unless He is God in flesh. A few weeks back, we we read about Jesus leaving the city of Jericho. Jericho was 17 miles away approximately from the city of Jerusalem. Jesus was set on Jerusalem, making His way there and set on the cross. We read that as they were departing from this, uh, this city of Jericho, that a blind man was sitting by the road. Matthew says, it tells us that it was two men, but in Mark's gospel, it just speaks of one of them. And he heard Jesus was passing by. He's blind, and he begins to cry out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. He actually applies a messianic title to Jesus. Here's this blind man crying out to Jesus with a, a messianic title. O Lord, Son of David, is how he addresses him. I believe that each miracle that Jesus performed, as I already have shared, was a divine appointment. Each instance that Jesus found himself in was a divine appointment. Each miracle... It was a, was a declaration of who He was. To God's people, the Messiah was to come. 
They were looking for that. <clears throat> Somehow or another, this blind man called out to Jesus and, and, and really gave him that, those words, O Lord, Son of David. Jesus would come through the Davidic line all the way. They, this was what they knew. It's what the prophets foretold. But a miracle, being a divine appointment. Remember when we read that account of that blind man that the people began to cry out. And this man that was blind, they told him to stop crying out to Jesus. They didn't even like it. What he was saying and, and who he was and him calling out to Jesus, they tried to quiet him. And, and then we're told that he cried out all the more. They couldn't stop him. Son of David, have mercy on me. <clears throat> I think he just kept saying it over and over again. What a declaration that was on that day. Do you see the bigger picture? Jesus is going to heal the blind man and all the while He's there declaring who He is. Here's a man who has physically blinded eyes, yet he has spiritual heart to be able to see and perceive. Immediately we're told He received His sight and then He began to follow Jesus. What a testimony. That's exactly what Jesus knew was going to take place. That whole multitude that we're following were eyewitnesses of that. A healing right in front of their eyes. And here's this man made whole, and he's following Jesus on the rest of this journey. Like us, when you got saved, you know, did you have a testimony of, a, of something you, you couldn't help? want to go tell somebody about Jesus Christ. Look what He's done in my life. Mark's Gospel doesn't tell us this, but we're told this in John's Gospel, that there was another very important miracle that happened before Jesus made His way into that city on the back of that donkey. It's, it was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Do you think that's a significant miracle? And even the timing of that happening when it did? In John's Gospel, it's recorded as the seventh miracle that's recorded in John's Gospel. Not that that's all that Jesus did, but John just put Lazarus raising from the dead as the seventh miracle in that Gospel. It was recorded... I believe it was an ordained time and an appropriate time as Jesus was about to make His way to the cross where He was going to raise from the dead on the third day. Both of these miracles had spiritual implications for the moment, for the time. A blind man's eyes opened up. A dead man raised from the grave. Uh, can you relate to that in your own life? When you used to be blinded, by your sin. When you used to not know Christ and, and you couldn't see it and you couldn't understand it, and then He opened your spiritual eyes to see. And then the day that you got saved, you realized how you had been saved from your sin. Victory over sin. Victory over the grave. 
here's these two miracles before he would make his way down into that city. John's Gospel tells us in chapter 12, verse 1, that Jesus, after He raised Lazarus from the dead, He left that village of Bethany and He came back to that village six days before the Passover. Remember, Jesus was crucified on the Passover. He came back to Bethany six days before the the Passover. It was probably on a Friday. The next day was the Sabbath day. And Jesus would have probably stayed there in Bethany with His friends and those that were there, the disciples. And then it would be the next day that Jesus would make His way to those villages or to the, go have His disciples retrieve that donkey and He would make His way down into Jerusalem as King of the Jews. The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Perfect timing. Uh, the event was already worked out in heaven. It's only two miles now. And now they're two miles away from Jerusalem. These small little village towns, Bethany and, and Bethphage, they were both just right over the top of the Mount of Olives. We read that in Mark 11:4, so the disciples went their way. They found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to him, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Luke's gospel tells us this. In uh, chapter 19, verse 30. As you enter, Jesus told them, the village, you will find a colt tied in which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you are loosening it, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and they found it. And it tells us this, just as he had said to them. How many things has Jesus said to you? How many promises has He given you in His Word that you could actually, that you've stood upon? You know, Jesus told me this. He promised me this. And I'm going to stand upon this. Just as He told us it would happen, there it was. And how many times can we give a testimony? Look, Lord, You came through and You fulfilled that promise. You took care of the situation. I prayed and You've... You intervened. He, they retrieved this colt on which no one had ever sat. And I don't know anything about horse training. I don't know if any of you do, or breaking a colt, breaking a horse, but I think there's something significant to the fact that no one's ever sat. And I did kind of look on, what's it take to break a donkey to ride on it, you know, or a horse? You know, you don't typically, I wouldn't probably want to. I mean, I tried that once as a teenager. I saw this horse out there that was kind of in a pinned up and thought I was going to go jump on the back of this thing. If, if, if they're not broken, if they're not, you don't really want to get on the back of one of them. But with Jesus, that's not an issue, is it? Which no one had ever sat. That the son of... God would sit upon and ride into Jerusalem upon. 
And then the people began to cry out as Jesus made. The people behind him, people in front of him, Jesus in the center on the back with their, all their, their coats thrown on the back of this colt, making his way down the Mount of Olives, just coming down the hill, down into the Kidron Valley where he'd come up the other side and he would go through the east gate of the Temple Mount. What a, what a day this was. We're told that the people, as they walked, and they began to, to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I started thinking, about our worship, our worship of the Lord. Actually, I was thinking this morning, I man, maybe we've got some visitors with us that were really lifting their voices up loud, but I kind of heard it a little bit louder this morning. Thank you for coming. There were some loud voices that I heard. Maybe it's my hearing aids turned up, I don't know, but I, I heard it louder. And I have a feeling it was like that on that day. Very loud. People worshiping without fear, without whatever. Started thinking about as we gather together as a church. There's a lot of things that keep us from really opening our mouths. Maybe you're one of them now and maybe you've been one of them. You know, it's like, you know, hey, I don't have a good voice. You know, I'll just keep silent. You know, or there's all kinds of reasons why we don't. You know, have you ever raised your hands to the Lord like that? Oh, no, that's too no. Raise your hand like you're getting real crazy or something because you raise your hand, you know, like, like that's something, you know. And, and I've been in that environment. And I, and I want to just say that, you know what, I, I think that there's a lot of pride involved that keeps God's people from really being able to, to lay it out before the Lord. To be able to just raise our hands without any intimidation that somebody's thinking I'm getting weird. Raise your hands. Raise your voice up to the Lord. You're worshiping Him. You're not doing it for other people. You're worshiping Him. Have you ever been in that place where you just felt like you were going to explode inside? I thought it was interesting that Kyle said that in during worship. That you were going to explode inside that you just had to tell somebody about the Lord. Has that ever happened in your life? You're welling up inside with things and your joy in the Lord and you're just what the Lord is doing. And I just got to tell somebody. I got to write something out on faith. I know just something that's going to lift my Lord up. Our pride will keep us from telling this world his wonderful works. You know, I keep it inside the building here. Keep it to myself. I think when we worship him, we need to worship him with all of our heart, soul, and mind, everything within us. This multitude, without shame, we're praising the Lord and I think that we have every reason as Christians to praise God, whether we're in this building 
whether you're driving down the road, whether you're in the workplace, whether you're at school, wherever you're at. To give praise to the Lord just simply means I'm not ashamed to open my mouth about my Lord. To say something of Him, even if I'm saying it to myself and other people are here and I'm not ashamed of my Lord. Hosea 14.2 says, For we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Psalm 100 verse 2, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Psalm 134 verse 2 says, Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Some Christians can't even do that. Pride won't allow. I mean, uh, have you ever felt like that? People are raising, and you feel like your hands are kind of strapped down to the seat. I can't do that. You know, raise my hands. I think that. I think these Jews. I mean, they, this is what they did. Loud praising the Lord, and and I'm not just talking about just loud meaning all that God wants. I'm talking about worship from the heart. I encourage us all to let our guard down when it comes to a worship of our Lord. Let it down. Just be okay with it. Don't get too weird. Don't jump out of your seat and run around the place. But, but just be okay with, with worshiping the Lord and lift up your voice.